Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 95 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is a conversation with Teresa Troster-Falk, Chief Global Privacy Strategist at Nimity. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and I wanted to welcome uh, Teresa Troster-Falk to our podcast. Let me give you uh, just a little background on Nimity and Teresa's role at Nimity, and then we'll jump right into our topic today, which is compliance with the California Consumer Privacy Act. Uh, Nimity was uh, founded in 2002 and is a software company with 16 privacy compliance solutions. Nimity's solutions are designed to minimize time to compliance as they are built on an expert platform. Nimity is the only company in the industry with an expert platform maintained by a dedicated research team. Uh, Teresa leads Nimity's global privacy uh, practice and is a thought leader in the privacy industry. She's an expert and helps privacy professionals to comply with applicable laws and regulations. She also engages with Nimity's customers, data and privacy regulators, policy groups and think tanks, and other privacy leaders. Teresa leads many of Nimity's accountability research initiatives. Uh, she has over 20 years' experience in law, including 14-plus years as a global privacy professional. Prior to joining Nimity, she served as an Associate General Counsel for Privacy for Nielsen, where Teresa expanded the global privacy program as well as initiated and led key global and regional privacy and data protection programs and strategies, driving the relationships across internal and external stakeholders to advance the company's privacy agenda, well, welcome, Teresa. Thank you so much for your time today, and we're looking forward to our conversation. Well, uh, thank you, Michael. It's my delight to be here. And I, um, you had mentioned I've been in this field for a while, and uh, it, it amazes me that it's a topic of interest, you know, that we're talking about California privacy law, because when I go back to my early days, I mean, those of us who've been in this field a long time, all have kind of a happy accident story of how we landed in this field. And now young professionals are choosing this field because there's so much work and it's, and it's a really exciting profession. But in the old days, if you will, uh, you talk about what you did and it was a quick conversation and very hard to explain and nobody really had that much interest. And now when I say that, you know, my field is international privacy law, uh, there's so much interest and, and I'm amazed at how many sort of ordinary folks know terms like the GDPR and they've heard of the California privacy law. So that certainly represents a huge shift in the topic and how timely it is. So yeah, we're here talking about the California Consumer Privacy Act. I think that's amazing. Well, it, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, I saw an influx from, or like the sort of rise from GDPR, but in working you know, if you were in a specialized industry like healthcare and HIPAA or, grant, you know, financial with the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, you know, you, you kind of knew certain aspects of it and you got more professionalized about it. But now it seems like it's just cutting across so many, you know, business operations. And to me, there are just some really interesting issues, which we'll talk about in terms of, you know, how privacy fits in with other compliance functions and the sort of importance of, you know, coordinating that and making sure you have a good working relationship with other compliance uh, functions within the company. 
uh, you know, your company clients. So, um, but anyways, uh, you know, let me get off my high horse a little bit mm-hmm. and uh, just sort of, you know, briefly, if you can, just uh, give us a, a description for our listeners here for the California Consumer Privacy Act. We have a deadline approaching. And what are you telling your clients and companies and contacts, um, you know, from a high level perspective? I mean, how are they approaching this and how seriously are they taking it? Hopefully seriously. Yeah. Well, since its enactment uh, last year in June, uh, we've heard this law called words like groundbreaking and watershed and unprecedented. Um, so is it all that is the question. And in short, I would say, yes, it is. And again, having been in this field a long time and having worked with a lot of professionals over the last couple of years who are worried about GDPR, I have never seen so much, um, I'm going to say anxiety, worry, frenzy among privacy professionals in the U S who say, you know, I'm, I'm so concerned about GDPR. Maybe it didn't even apply to me, but I am even more concerned about what's going on in the U.S., specifically California. So why why is that the case? Um, it is extremely broad in scope. It requires in the most basic forms of notice and choice. But but at its core, it gives California uh, Californians certain consumer rights that are legal obligations: the right to prohibit data sharing, um, the right to request access, deletion, and portability. And what has, of course, everybody nervous uh, is the plaintiff's right to statutory damages in case of security breaches. I would like to point out, though, importantly, you know, unlike the GDPR, which is a very broad accountability-based law that had so many uh, broad legal requirements, um, things like an obligation under Article 5 to demonstrate compliance, the appointment of a data protection officer, the requirement to do data protection impact assessments, and so many more. California doesn't have any of that. But again, at its core are these um, obligations to deal with new consumer rights. And so how are we, you know, how do we see companies preparing or how should they be preparing? We see a lot of things. The it is widely acknowledged that the law is poorly drafted. There's a lot of ambiguities. There are several amendments that are pending, some that have fallen out of committee and are dead, but many to go. Some are sort of taking a wait-and-see approach. We do not advise that um, because the core requirements are not going to change. That right to know what information is being collected about me, how it's being shared, the right to have access to that information to delete, those core requirements will not change. So there is no reason to hesitate, no need to wait to start putting in place mechanisms um, to deal with those. So for so we decided to advise if you're if you're getting started, that's the place to start to make sure that you have mechanisms in place to fulfill those kinds of requests. I saw and there were two there just a, a couple of specifics that I saw about this were there's an opt out requirement like uh, that you have to provide to consumers so that, for example, that uh, companies cannot sell your data. Uh, and also um, the right to know whether what people are what a company is going to do with your data, and those to me mm-hmm. uh, just 
seemed like huge requirements for any, obviously, retail company. But I think of so many other interactions that occur between consumers and companies. And it just, I mean, to be honest with you, when I read the law, I thought it was pretty, I know what you're saying about it being inexact at parts. But on the other hand, there are some core requirements here, which you mentioned, uh, that everybody should be planning for. And they seem to me pretty burdensome. Uh, if you're if you're a, just a national company, not even global, and you operate in the United States and you have customers in California, then that's your sort of baseline now for how you have to operate. I think that's right. And um, certainly when I was practicing uh, in-house leading legal departments, uh, we used to say, you know, whatever came out in California, that was de facto a national law, right? We all Right. Every company has consumers in California. It's the fifth largest economy, so it would be treated like a national law. You mentioned two things. <clears throat> the do not sell, the right to opt out of the sale of information, and then sort of these consumer rights around access. So the first part, I you know, when I look at this from this law from the and compare it to other laws like the GDPR or Singapore or Hong Kong, the actual compliance obligations are not so onerous in terms of what is required in terms of putting in place mechanisms. However, the business implications of those are, are huge. So that do not sell, that's right. really unique. Um, so for folks who don't listen, who may not know what we're talking about, um, there's um, under the law the, uh, the right for consumers to opt out of um, – their information being shared with third parties or being sold to third parties. Most companies go, well, I don't sell third-party data, so that, or I don't sell data to third parties, so that's not a problem for me. But the definition is so broad that you may be selling information technically when you think that you're not, and that's where it'd be helpful for you to consult with outside counsel. So when I hear um, you know, external counsel talk about this, you know, what they're, what they're suggesting to businesses to first decide, do you sell data? I mean, are you falling under that definition? You may, even if you think you're not. Um, right. And if you are, do you want to going forward? Because if you do, you have to put on every page of your website a conspicuous link that says, do not sell my data. And I think, Michael, you and I can agree, like any consumer is going to a website who sees that link is probably going to click on it, right? Because right. they're not going to understand and that's going to have huge implications. So that's the first part companies are figuring out. Do I even fall with this? And you mentioned the retail industry. That will be huge. And if I do, do I want to going forward? Yeah. And then the second part is basic consumer rights that we see across privacy and data protection laws around the world. They come from the OECD guidelines. They come from fair information privacy practices. I, as an individual, should have the right to access my data, to know what you hold about me, and tell you whether or not I want you to hold it and therefore delete it. So those, those are the two big requirements. And in the U.S., companies have not had to deal with that requirement as has been the case in other parts of the world. Yeah. Boy, I, I, you know what? You just, uh, even in just describing what you're talking about, I can see just room for resources, questions, you know, process controls in place and processes. Mm -hmm. You're right, because every mm -hmm. company's website, once that notice is up there, 
everybody's going to click on it and want to know what what are we talking about here and then you mm-hmm. then your, your clients have to have uh, you know the infrastructure to deal with that, all of those inquiries or requests or whatever they are so you know I can mm-hmm. I, I you, you raise a lot of good points about that so but going back to California for a second Teresa you said, you know, whatever California does is almost like your national standard. But this is such a hot topic right now uh, in terms of consumer privacy, data privacy. Um, what are you seeing in terms of other states? And is there a chance, do you think there's ever a chance that another state may move even beyond California to say, well, that's great, California, but we're doing even more here? What's your view? What's your sense of that? Well, so there's um, kind of the factual answer to that, and then I guess maybe my opinion or sense of that. So uh, at Nimity, one of our core products is a research product, and we produce uh, dozens and dozens of maps and charts that are updated um, in real, almost in real time, if you will. So I'm looking at our latest consumer privacy laws and bills of the U.S., and um, as of today, we have California that, of course, has enacted its law. Nevada enacted a law um, a few weeks back that comes into effect this October. And beyond that, 10 additional states that are considering uh, wow. similar laws. Now, going back to the map in April, that was 17 additional states. So, you know, we lost Hawaii and Rhode Island and Illinois and Louisiana and Puerto Rico, but we still have, you know, Connecticut, Maryland, Massachusetts. Um, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Vermont. Um, So, yes, California absolutely started the trend. uh, And we anticipated this. You think back to, like, security breach legislation, right? Started in California. And today we have 50 state laws. Um, Now, to your second part, is there a state that could go beyond? I think, yes. I mean, we saw that uh, in the bill in Washington. Microsoft was behind it. And it is, you know, it is, it's not technically dead. It's sort of, it's dead for now. (laughs) Um, It seemed like there was going to be a move, but it may be considered next year. But that was a clear example of where uh, a state law would go beyond CCP. And that law was much more aligned with GDPR. And it makes sense that a company like Microsoft was supporting that law, because if you think of a global operator like that, um, who went through the effort to comply with very onerous and detailed accountability obligation of GDPR, you know, you want to have one way of doing business, if at all right. possible. Right. So, yes, I think it's possible. But, you know, um, and you, that your reference to, you know, data breach and security breaches, which ultimately led to 50 states passing laws, and then it was like the you know, most difficult common denominator became sort of the national standard. And Mm -hmm. that raises, you know, if we're going to see that in this, you know, uh, issue, we're going to get into some real challenging scenarios for companies that have to comply with, you know, a variety of state laws. How How do you, I mean, obviously having a map like you're talking about and, uh, and, and what you guys provide 
uh, is going to be helpful in terms of your overall support services and your counseling that you uh, help companies with. But these are real challenges because you have to come up with the solutions and help the companies to implement them. So what, how, do you, how do you try to do that and how do you work with clients in that area? Yeah. That's so I'll, I'll answer that question kind of broadly and historically. So um, when I was practicing you know, in-house, uh, it was at a time when we didn't have privacy management tools <laughs> available. We use a lot of external counsel, lots of interns, lots of Word documents and spreadsheets, and the very traditional approach to <clears throat> compliance was law by law. So I have a law in um, Germany. Let me look at the compliance requirements and address those. And so now there's a new one in Hong Kong. Let me address the compliance requirements. That process is completely unsustainable or scalable over time. And now we're seeing that in the U.S., right? So California. Okay, let me address this. But wait, now there's Nevada. Oh no, I might have text. Oh, like that is that's that will go nowhere over time. So at Nimity, um, several years ago, before my time there, actually Nimity did a lot of research on the notion of accountability in the context of privacy and data protection laws and principles. And essentially, if you trace the history of that, it means putting in place a privacy program and if we think about all of the, the data protection laws around the world and we look at those in the U.S., they are fundamentally based on the same principles. Yes, there are tweaks, like California has this do not sell button. That's a unique feature. But under, underneath that are abiding principles, fair information privacy practices in the U.S., the OECD guidelines for um, transported data flows. You see these repeated common themes and principles that translate into operational practices. So what we recommend is how to future-proof yourself. Um, of course, that's not 100% possible, but to put you in good stead for any law coming forward is to stop thinking about this in terms of what specific requirements does this law um, address, and rather putting in place the bones of a comprehensive privacy program. So I know that if I have fundamental mechanisms in place to address consumer requests, that is going to help me in California and it will help me in Nevada. And it's, you know, those, those basic rights to access, correction, deletion, those are standard across privacy and data protection laws. So put in place mechanisms that, Stop thinking about them as a project in relation to a single compliance law, but rather a mechanism that needs resources and that can be sustained over time and is part of a broader program. I said a lot of things, but um, in it, essentially we call this the accountability approach to compliance, the outcome of which is compliance with many laws. Uh, that And that's interesting because, you know, we saw just by analogy in the anti-corruption area, we saw that what became sort of the guideposts for a lot of folks was obviously the FCPA and then the UK Bribery Act. And what, what I, and, and, you know, basically it was don't engage in bribery, you know, no matter who it is. But, um, but what I think by analogy you're pointing to are that there are so many common principles uh, among all of these regimes that, there's a lot that you can build 
as a foundation for your program. And that's where you guys come in and build sort of this accountability foundation. Uh, and then I guess my question is, like, if I'm in healthcare and I have to meet HIPAA requirements or I have to meet, let's say I do something unique in Europe and I have to meet GDPR, that's you, you then build out your program from there to make sure that you hit all of those requirements as well. Is that, am I right? You know what, how we see a lot of companies talk about that is slightly differently, and that is um, I have one accountable privacy program. That right. meets my obligations in, I'm going to say, 90, 95% of all the jurisdictions in which I operate. Now, HIPAA, let's take this example of HIPAA, because this is a really interesting one with California. HIPAA uh, data is exempted, right, from from the requirements of CCPA, but oh, health okay. entities, okay, health entities though don't. I've I've heard um, lawyers that uh, are experts in this field get into some very, <laughs> very detailed arguments about this because um, while it does provide an exemption for protected health information. Uh, many companies, including healthcare providers, maintain health information that is actually not protected health information as defined under HIPAA. So an example would be, you know, health information that's embedded in employee, employment records, right? Medical information on yeah. your employment record, like maybe short-term disability. Well, that doesn't fall within the definition of protected health information. So technically, it's not exempted from the CCPA. So I, I don't want to get into the nits of this. But uh, bringing that to a high level, what we see companies do when you get into these very specific requirements where there is kind of an outlier, companies will create um, exceptions, right? So they'll say, this is my program, and here's the exception for this particular wow. jurisdiction yeah. or this practice. And, you know, that does require some maturity, but um, it is still uh, much more scalable and efficient than trying to address, you know, law by law by law by law, looking for those outliers and exceptions um, to your program. Yeah, well, that's that's really interesting, Teresa, um, uh, because I always wonder how you coordinate all this, and and this goes back to some you know really good sort of best practices in terms of what you're talking about and how to handle you know compliance with multiple laws and how you uh, and how you do that. So that's that's um, very interesting. Um, I go ahead. Yeah, please. Well, I was going to add that it's also to add weight to that approach. It's a, it's an approach that regulators favor. So going back to, I think it was 2012, maybe 2014, I may have my dates incorrect, but the Canadian uh, Privacy Commissioner put out a paper called, you know, um, accountability, getting privacy right with a, with a privacy management program. And it was following the, um, uh, Canada's legislation, PIPEDA, you know, that's an omnibus privacy law in Canada, but then companies are like, well, but how do I operationalize all of this? And so there was some attempt to say, here's how you get it right. <laughs> Put in place a program, and they started defining what that program would look like. Now, that was picked up in Hong Kong. It fundamentally became part of the GDPR. Um, and, the, you know, we hear the FTC talking about these things. And I'm bringing it up to say that it's not just an approach, but regulators favor this approach and um, have stated and and the fines show they're more likely to be lenient, right, in the case of, um, you know, 
a non-systemic issue. Like if you have a breach and you can show that it was pure, like mistakes will happen, right? Right, um, right. If you had in place a program and there were good faith efforts and this really was an anomaly, um, they'll be more lenient. I mean, there's, there's a lot of precedent to show that. So I think it's not just uh, a practical approach. It's a sound approach um, as you think about how to prioritize risk in the face of regulatory you know, enforcement. Yeah, that's great. That's really helpful. Um, you know, one other, and I, you know, I hate to go back in my you know career days when you know I didn't have so many gray hairs. Uh, but as somebody <laughs> said, they once, uh, "You're lucky you have hair." But anyway, um, <laughs> but going back to my days as working on the chief counsel uh, on the House Judiciary Committee, we worked on federal legislation in this area. But we could never get it done. And it was so frustrating because it clearly this is an issue that calls out for federal legislation. And as as did, you know, uh, data breaches and all that. But we were always getting pushback from tech companies, uh, you know, from data brokers, you know, uh, the credit companies, you know, the credit uh, reporting companies. Um, Do you think I mean, do you think that there may be enough? traction behind this issue nowadays that even though nothing is really happening that much in Washington, D.C. and Capitol Hill in terms of legislation, but do you see any chance where this could ultimately get resolved uh, at the federal level? So I guess the short answer is I don't know, but um, it's kind of like all those answers the officials give around Brexit. No one knows, but I can argue it both ways. And I'm going to, I'm going to argue because I can see both, both sides. So my understanding of the legislative process is that it would be impossible that a federal bill would pass, you know, this year, right? Right. You're not talking about this, this, this year. But yet there are those in the know who are on the Hill and participate with lobbyists and are members of big tech firms who will say, I think there's a 50% chance. I have no idea how that could happen given the state in Washington, D.C., just in terms of paralysis, but also my understanding of the legislative process. But people who know more than I say that is possible. Now, um, you raised a point when you were you know, facing this in, in your days you didn't have the support of the tech companies. And that is what is uniquely different now, that big tech companies are behind the federal bill. Wow. And that that may make a difference. So you've got Facebook and Google and Microsoft, and they're all supporting federal legislation. I don't know if you or your listeners have been following, there's a really fascinating series of articles in the New York Times called The Privacy Project. It's been going on the last couple of months. And um, leaders of big tech firms have been weighing in, basically saying, please regulate us. I mean, w- you know, <laughs> we don't know anymore, right? right. Um, so that's a big game changer. Now I'll argue the other side. On the other side, it's all these years later and we don't have federal security breach law. We've got 50 state laws. And somehow companies have managed to um, comply if you will. And you mentioned sort of take the highest common denominator. You look at HIPAA, a federal law, but it wasn't preemptive. So then you had some state laws and somehow companies were able to do it. I think, uh, so and I've, I can argue both ways. Um, certainly the tech companies that are supporting a federal bill want it to preempt state law. And I think that is where the rub will be. Right. Um, and that is where it may not go through. 
Yep. So, so my short answer is I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's a good way of saying I don't know because it actually <laughs> answers both sides of the I don't know. But so let's go back, though. So now I'm sitting here and I'm, you know, I'm the CEO of a company. I'm looking at my data privacy, my information management people, and I say, okay, we've got to comply with this California law. It's coming up. And, you know, it, it at uh, Enmity, what do you see as sort of the biggest implementation challenges when dealing with your company clients and your constituents and, you know, talking to regulators, all the things that you're doing right now? I think it's two key areas. So one is because the very specific compliance requirements under the law deal with consumer rights, it is putting in place mechanisms, policies, procedures, automated tools, something to be able to fulfill those consumer requests when they come in. If, so, if I'm selling data and I have that button, do I have a mechanism in place to honor that request throughout the ecosystem? Um, when a consumer contacts me through that 1-800 number or you know a link, web form saying, I would like access to my information, do I have some process, a procedure, or tool in place that will allow me to respond to that request within the timeline? So that is the critical area to address. Um, it's the consumer. It's the consumer rights. You'll hear a lot of, I, I would say if there's one lesson to be learned from the GDPR, and I've heard this over and over, and we see that among our clients um, who hire consultants and lawyers, and et cetera, et cetera rightly, is that way too much time was spent on assessing my gaps mm. um, and too much budget. So by the time I got done with my assessment to know where my gaps were, my budget was eaten up and I had so little time for remediation. Whereas it's, we know right now, this law cares about consumer rights. You know if you have procedures in place to address them or not. And if you don't, you better get working on them. <laughs> um, right. So right. that is, yeah, that's the, you don't need to, you know, spend a lot of money assessing your gaps or, you know, you're going to know pretty quickly whether you have that in place or not. Now, having said that, we see, we just don't know what the volume is going to be like, right? Um, if I can make an analogy to the GDPR, a lot of companies were concerned that there was going to be a deluge of access requests. And there were a lot of consumer groups that were raising awareness around these issues. Regulators were raising awareness. And for certain, on day one, there was an uptick. And, you know, I heard some clients say I had, you know, 10 times or 100 times more requests in the first month than I did in 10 years. But that leveled off back to kind of normal numbers. And, and some, it has, you know, certainly stayed higher. But, um, you know, California is, it's a litigious state, right? So yeah, that true. is the concern that um, our companies have. What if I get 200,000 requests? I, I just don't think that's, that outside of the big tech companies that have already, you know, created mechanisms to deal with this, use self-service portals to, you know, to download your information. I don't think that's going to be the case, but I think there will be a period of time because there will be awareness raised about this, that there will be an uptick in in um, access requests for sure. Right. And um, 
and part of this process to me is is what your relationship is like between your privacy professionals and senior management and your board on sort of the mm-hmm. obligations and what are you seeing in terms of that? Are is senior management responding appropriately? Uh, are they getting the resources to people to implement solutions here? And also, are boards adequately, you know, informed and educated on this issue, or is there still work to do in this area? But, yeah, that's a really interesting question, and the answer is, from my perspective, it is all over the map, right? So. Um, you have what we are seeing, and the statistics are are uh, proving this as well. So an independent uh, Ernst and Young IFPP study showed that increasingly boards are requesting information on the progress of privacy compliance, privacy program metrics and KPIs, status of GDPR compliance. Now, taking bear in mind that the survey um, respondents database, if you will, were privacy professionals who were probably working on GDPR. But um, uh, I've also had recent conversations with folks who sit on a lot of boards and have gone through board training and approached me and said, you know, one of the modules that we were trained on in terms of corporate liability was privacy compliance and compliance of privacy laws. So if board members are being trained, I mean, it's going to take some time, right, that, for that to be widespread but are being trained on this area as a matter of corporate liability, that for sure, you know, will trickle down. But it, but it, but it's sort of, but so I'll say all over the map from it is on my board's agenda. They want to know they're driving it to, I just can't, I'm still trying to explain how privacy is different from security because <laughs> everybody gets security breaches. Tell me how many breaches we had, how we dealt with them. Right. I've always been a, you know, a board right. item. How can Enmity, you know, uh, help companies in this process? And what are the kinds of solutions or ways that you you help companies uh, in this area? Yes. Yeah, so we um, have been around for 17 years. Um, we have uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients, and we have been supporting the privacy office and beyond that, security and IT. Anybody who has budget to um, to comply with privacy legislation. We have an expert platform. We have 16 tools um, from research and knowledge tools. Uh, so if you're a global entity and you need to stay on top of the latest and compare laws and maps and charts and all those kinds of things to really specific program management tools. I want to build a privacy program. I don't know where to start. We have frameworks and methodologies built into our automated tools to help you get started, to track, to know who owns tasks and activities and manages over time, to very specific compliance tools. So, for example, with California, I would speak to two of our tools that I think could be very beneficial for companies who are looking to automate beyond um, current manual processing procedures. Our data subject rights tool, which um, allows for really minimizes the time to compliance on these requirements around consumer rights. It's it's much beyond a automated workflow system. It includes a compliance panel. We have built-in forms and templates that allow you to respond to requests sort of instantaneously and and manage them. So our data subject rights tool and our records of process and inventory tool. So. One thing that I thought was brilliant, really, in retrospect around 
a GDPR obligation was for those of listening who had to deal with GDPR was Article 30 required a record of processing activities. It was an inventory of sorts, but you, for listeners who are thinking about California compliance, you're going to hear a lot of buzz in the marketplace of you can't get started with this until you do an inventory of all of your data assets, because how can you fulfill a consumer request unless you know that? But for those of us who've been on the side of practicing, um, we know that that exercise, again, will eat up all your budget time and expenses and it's outdated before you've even completed it, given how quickly you know data is changing and our assets are changing and acquisitions and um, systems are changing. It's important to know, but a more efficient way and what we see a lot of clients using is this records of processing inventory. And so we have an automated tool to support that, but it really aligns with how the business thinks, it helps engage the business, it aligns with the requirements of California's law, so instead of sort of inventorying all of my assets, it asks you to identify all of my processing activities, um, where, why, I'm, why I'm processing, what data I need to process, and, and how I manage that throughout my, throughout my company. So in short, the two tools that I think would be most beneficial to companies getting started that would be really a lot of bang for the buck in terms of minimizing time to compliance would be that records of processing inventory and data subject rights solution. Well, that, that sounds great, Teresa, because uh, people need some help in this area, and it sounds like you and your company are, are there for them. So if people want to reach you, um, what's the best way, if you don't mind giving uh, contact information out so that people can reach you, uh, we would appreciate that. I know our listeners would. Yeah, so uh, in an email, it's simply info at nimity.com, M-Y-M-I-T-Y. You can also just go to our website, nimity.com, and there's a contact us form on almost every page. Um, So info at nimity.com for email or the contact us form on our website. Well, that's terrific. Um, Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. And uh, I really appreciate your time and attention and, uh, you know, good luck in uh, the data privacy area. I know that uh, there'll be more developments and hopefully we can have you uh, return sometime to sort of uh, catch up on how everybody did and where we're going from there and, you know, uh, after California. Well, thank you. It was my delight to participate and thank you for the opportunity, Michael. All right. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At Ethical Companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance at our website, www.bullpuplaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me my email address, mbullpup at bullpuplaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals.